This is Classic Bones, episode number three for September 5th, 2023. On this action-packed edition, we will be reviewing in the Dog Bowl, Dion's first game, the school Dion does not claim Florida State and their route of LSU, and look at other Saturday action. In the Classic Bones segment, we look back at the 2022 Texas A&M Miami game and have talking points about their upcoming showdown. We also look at the colossal clash of two future SEC opponents in Alabama and Texas and look back at their history. We say goodbye to a Pac-12 rivalry and look ahead to the third Saturday in September clash between Tennessee and Florida. And we run out the segment with a backyard brawl. We, ha- we also have our prediction segment that you won't want to miss. Hi, Hi, welcome to the Dogs Media Network. I am Kyle Golick, along with the living legend, Scotty Solomon. Welcome you to another edition of Classic Bones. Scott, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. It's been an awesome weekend. Pressure-packed college football. You just got to love it. If you if you love college football, you had a great weekend. You ready to get started? Let's do it, brother. All righty, then. We kick off the Dog Bowl with the story of the weekend, and it's hard not to know that came from Fort Worth, Texas, and Colorado's 45-42 win over uh, TCU who played in the national championship game. Deion Sanders' first game was a winner for Colorado. You had Shador Sanders, who put up 510 yards, which was a Colorado record. Travis Hunter had arguably a breakout game that a lot of people were starting to talk Heisman and Dion couldn't resist and was Dion at the end of the game there. So Scott, let's talk about the game first. What are some of your key takeaways from that game? Well, I think Travis Hunter proved why he was the number one recruit in the country last year. He is a dominating player on both sides of the football. He plays old school football going both ways. I loved his performance. Uh, I'm not too keen on what Colorado did, but I really respect their players, and I respect what Shador did. He he always found the open man. He scrambled with his legs to elongate plays. I uh, really respect what they did, and uh, they went into a difficult situation, and they came out with the W. Sanders, we're talking the quarterback here, Shador, had one of the amazing debuts, 38 of 47 passing, 5, 10, and 4 touchdowns. He looked like he belonged, and I don't know when the last time Colorado had such an impact player under center like that, and this is going to make them a very compelling team to watch all season long. Uh Travis Hunter, what can you say with that playing both sides of the ball here? And he had 119 receiving yards. He had three tackles. He had a great interception. But the stat everyone's talking about with Hunter, he played 145 snaps. I don't think that's sustainable over 12 games, Scott. I I just think that's just a problem of lack of depth right now for Colorado. I think you can do that at Jackson State because the level of competition isn't as great as it is in the Power Five. 
But to do that all year in the Power Five when you go up against Pac-12 teams, I just don't see it happening. I don't either. And it's here's the thing, and, and much to your point, and I'm going to use Bear Bryant's legendary uh, freshman speech to back this up. So you might be one week a 75 overall ability player and – the guy across from you might be an 85. Maybe the guy who's an 85 one week isn't having his best week, and the best he can do is a 75 or an 80. Maybe your ability, it you up your game, and now you're an 80. So now it's an even matchup, or even to an extent, you're winning that matchup. In the, in the SWAC, you know, Travis Hunter at maybe 75 is the best player on the field. In a power five situation, you can't have Travis Hunter be a 75, especially with the lack of talent. And I'm not trying to, and people are going to be like, Colorado lack of talent and freak out. I'm not trying to say that they aren't talented. It's just they're not where Coach Sanders has them would like them to be at so when you have a guy like travis hunter he has to be playing at the highest ability at all times and over 11 games 12 games you can't be playing 145 snaps every game out that's going to eventually take its toll between the practices and the games itself there's no way he's going to be able to keep this up for the whole year it, it, it would be insurmountable Colorado's got to look to their depth. I know they've got other cornerbacks on the team that are capable that can come in maybe on a third down situation and give Travis Hunter a breather, but he, he didn't come out of the game yesterday. No. And when you're, when you're, when you have this, uh, pack 12 slate that they have, it's not sustainable. Do you think that, and we'll talk. We'll look, we'll talk more in the prediction segment. But do you see a letdown this week against Nebraska? Well, I think Nebraska is going to come in. They're hungry. They had a bad loss this week, and they're going to come in hungry. And they're they're going to want to dethrone Dion. They're going to want to ruin his home opener. They have a lot to play for. Matt Rule is going to get those guys ready to play. It's a classic rivalry that a lot of people may not remember because it's been a while Colorado hasn't been relevant, but in the Bill McCartney, Tom Osborne era, that was the rivalry in the late eighties and early nineties. When Barry Switzer went down at Oklahoma, most assumed that it would be Nebraska that would finally get it done with Osborne because he no longer had Switzer, but they overlooked what McCartney was doing at Colorado, bringing in guys like Darian Hagan, Eric Bieniemy, and all of a sudden they want to share the national championship in 1990 with Georgia Tech. So this is one of those games that has a lot of history. Nebraska may not look at Colorado as a rival, but when Bill McCartney got there, he forced the issue to make that a statement and a rivalry game and a goal for that program. And in a lot of ways, because Nebraska has been down and Colorado has been down, and this is a game that both teams need. 
it's going to be a fun one Saturday. Let's move on to the team Dion. No longer claims, we should say. You know, the Florida State Seminoles last night, Scott, I think had the statement game of week one. You know, a 45-24 route of LSU. And let's be honest, that last touchdown, that's uh, that 75-yarder that uh, they had there, really had no bearing on the game. It was 45-17. I did not see this coming. I thought LSU was going to have a better output. I'll have my thoughts on it. Scott, you were all Florida State all the way. Spoils to the victors. Talk about this game here. Oh, Florida State played an incredible game on both sides of the football. I think that uh, the way you have to look at it is LSU's secondary was banged up. They had a player suspended who couldn't participate. And their defense just was not up to par. Brian Kelly did not have that defense ready to play. They knew who they were going up against. They were going up against a Heisman candidate in Jordan Travis. And he's got some very talented weapons. He, uh, Keon Cohen, I'm sorry, Keon Coleman had nine catches. He had three touchdowns. Incredible game for the former Spartan. And Johnny Wilson had had a tremendous game as well. So I just think that Brian Kelly, once again, did not have his team ready to play a big game on national television. And that seems to be his trademark. It, it certainly is. And I was mentioning this on the Tim Bailey show. Uh, hopefully you guys listened early today and it's still out there for everyone to listen to. Um, LSU just seemed like they, early in the game, they seemed to be setting the tempo early. They, they had some control of that game. They did go into the half, believe it or not, up 17-14. I never felt, though, even though they they seemed to be punch and counterpunch, it's like a great boxing match. Yeah, LSU was up on points, but if you're watching the fight, Florida State was swinging, and their punches were hurting a lot more than what LSU was throwing. Jaden Daniels had as good a game as a losing quarterback could possibly have. I I really believe that Brian Kelly did not put him in the best position to win. They had fourth and goal at the one-yard line twice, once in the first half and once in the second half. And those were game changers. They did not score. The second time, uh, Daniels got sacked by Jared Verse, and they took the ball over on the 15-yard line. You can't win a game when you can't score. Absolutely. That's and a 28-point swing right there. That's a huge swing. The other thing, and I was, and again, this is another thing I had on the Tim Bailey show, is I thought the LSU offensive line did a fantastic job. Where I think LSU faltered in that game, Scott, it is – Florida State, you know, I I feel the Seminoles have one of the elite secondaries in the nation. And when you look back at that game, they 
Jaden Daniels did not even look at Fentrell uh, Cypress the second. He is as good of a defensive back as there is in a country and should get All-American and Thorpe consideration. But guys like Patrick uh, Payton and Azira Thomas had great games in the secondary. And I really feel a lot of the sacks weren't necessarily caused by the defensive line. I really felt there there were a lot of coverage sacks last night. And the secondary of Florida State, to me, would get the defensive game ball for that game. Well, the defense played very well. I mean, they had Jaden Daniels on the run the whole night. And he normally beats teams with his legs. But he wasn't getting to the edge. Florida State, if you notice, they tied up the edge on both sides. Dennis Briggs also was helping keeping that keeping that edge sealed. It's it was a great game last night. So, Scott, how high does Florida State go, and how low does LSU go? LSU drops out of the top ten for sure. Oh, oh that's that's a given. I, I think I, they're going to come in about number fifteen. I'm a little bit more harsh. I'm saying a 20. I I really feel, you know, this game for all intents and purposes was a, you know, 31 unanswered points in the second half. Top five teams don't do that, let alone top 10 teams, let alone top 15 teams. You could probably argue not even top 20 teams, but I feel that that's where their, 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 uh, punishment will be by the pollsters for Florida State. I really feel they're a top four in the t- team in the country right now. So I would have them at number four. Y- your thoughts on the Seminoles? I agree. They're a top four team. If you look at the three teams that are above them, they all played cupcakes. Florida State comes in and plays the number five team in the nation and scores 31 unanswered points in the second half. That's a quality victory. That was Mike Norvell's signature win. That I know is he had the... a big win against Miami last year, but that's not a signature win because Miami wasn't Miami last year. Yeah, and I really feel that this is a program changer. This is kind of, in you know, I know your affinity of Florida State and Bobby Bowden, but this had to feel for me last night a little bit like 1980 Nebraska, a, a, a game that just put the Seminoles on the map. And while Florida State has not fallen off the map, this is one of those games that reasserts them as one of the nation's top powers. If you don't mind, Scott, why don't we go a little bit on I-10 here and stop in Gainesville and go, what's going on with the Florida Gators? Think of it like this here. Utah was without their starting quarterback, Cam Rising. They did not have Junior Tafuna. At different times in the games, there was no Connor O'Toole, Samote Peppa, and Van Fillinger. For those at home, that's their starting defensive lineman. During the game, they they lost Kareen Reed in the game, who's their ace uh, linebacker who plays like a rover position. And Cole Bishop had to miss a series because he had gotten shaken up. These are a lot of high-end talent, and that defense 
only surrendered one third down conversion on the evening. They were one for 16. What's going on in, in Gainesville, Scott? Is, is this the start of the end for Napier? Well, I think Napier is on a very short leash, but like a lot of college coaches, he's got a very expensive buyout. And between the Gator Collective, I don't know if they're going to have enough money to buy him out. Yeah, and and that's the thing that's going to keep these coaches there. But I really feel he is in over his head at Florida. I don't. I think Anthony Richardson fell in his lap and gave him whatever momentum they had. And I'm not going to even blame uh, Napier for the bowl game. I believe they played Oregon State in the bowl game. They had almost like 30 or 40 opt-outs or players that weren't even eligible. I think they went to the bowl game with 47 players. So that wasn't conducive for success. But the thing that bothers me about the game in Utah is not only was Utah without all that talent it was so many procedure penalties and mental mistakes this was a game that florida was preparing for for seven months and it looked like they didn't even have a clue and to me that's more of an indictment on the coach when you have all this it's not like utah was bringing in a new coach a new system or what this is kyle whittingham and kyle whittingham simply just kept it to the vest and did what Utah does well and out executed everything. So I, I don't know what's going on with, with Napier here, but I think this is going to end very disastrous for the Gators. Well, they started Graham Mertz, a first time starter, a quarterback transfer from, from Wisconsin who had a very pedestrian game. He threw for over 300 yards. Uh, He didn't play that poorly. But no, he had no supporting cast. And that defense has so many holes in it, it looks like Swiss cheese. <laughs> it doesn't look good for him. I I don't feel Florida is going to be bowl eligible this year again. And at some point, that's going to make people irate. You look at where the SEC is at, they're not, they're not, it's not getting easier. They're bringing Texas and Oklahoma in. And one of the things that I took away when Oregon and Washington were announced to the Big Ten was from Big Ten analyst uh, Jerry DiNardo. And Jerry said, you know, with these super conferences starting to happen, there's a there's a grand pecking order. And if you're at the top, things are okay. But if you're rebuilding or in the middle, how far did you slide down or how much harder did your rebuild become? You can't Not- rebuild in the SEC. It's impossible. There's just too much talent on the the other teams that you're not going to have time to catch your breath. You can't bring players along and compete with Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, uh even LSU, who is a decent team, I'm not going to say a great team, but a decent team, they're so much better than a rebuild. I think that Florida's got at least three or four years ahead of them where they, they need to be able to get some players out of the transfer portal that are ready to play. They need plug-and-play players. 
And I think that's the only way that's going to save Napier. But my prediction is if it's not this year, it's going to be next year. Napier will be out at Florida. I know that there's a rumor circulating around Gainesville that Etienne is considering entering the portal. That would be the death blow for Napier's time in Gainesville. They, he, he could ill afford to have a player the caliber like Trevor Etienne transfer. Well, while Napier tries to figure out what's happening down in Gainesville, let's go to Big Ten country and let's talk about the border war of Penn State and Ohio State. And they each had quarterbacking stories from over the weekend. Kyle McCord at Ohio State had a lackluster performance against conference rival Indiana going 20 of 33 for 239 in a pick, but still maintain a 78 QBR. On the other side, at Penn State, Drew Allar had as good of a first impression as anyone could have in their first go-around. He had an 86 QBR. He finished the night 21 of 29 for 325 and three touchdowns. What the stat sheet doesn't tell you with Allar is he had the highlight 72-yarder that everyone's raving about to key Andre Lambert-Smith, and he, for the most part in the evening, Really didn't miss. He had three bad throws all evening. So for someone that was 90% on, it was a great deal. So, Scott, my question to you is between with Penn State having the breakout quarterback that lived up the expectations and Kyle McCord, how should fans look into these quarterbacking situations? I think Ohio State is going to have a very big problem this year. They're not going to be as good as people think they are. And they showed it on Saturday. I don't think that McCord is is a good quarterback. He, I'm, I've never been impressed with Ohio State's quarterbacks, even though they get drafted high. What do they accomplish? They 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 haven't done much. I'm, the most I'm ac- not a- the most accomplished Ohio State quarterback in this recent ro- run decided to go take his talents to baton rouge and that paid out handsomely yes Uh, i just don't think that if i'm a wide receiver or a quarterback and i'm being recruited by ohio state i i and i have to look at my future in the national football league and figure out what's going to get me there i don't necessarily think i want to go there air noland is committed to going to ohio state but he'll never play. And it's 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 a it's an interesting situation there. What I think bothered me more from the Ohio State game against Indiana, look, as someone who's been following the Big Ten for the past three decades, Indiana usually gives Ohio State a run for its money for about a half, maybe gets into the second half before Ohio State really begins to run away with it. Ohio State really didn't run away from it on Saturday against the Hoosiers. One of the things that bothered me was the ground game that Ohio State has was not effective. If you take away Chip Trey Adams and Travion Henderson's two long runs of the day, one of 19 and one of 17 yards there. Ohio State ran the ball 29 times for 107 yards. That's still respectable 3.7 yards a carry, but you got to keep in mind 
Indiana gave up a year ago 175 yards. And I get that the transfer portal, you can get talent, experienced talent, and quality talent to upgrade. But I would always counter, look at what, how Ohio State recruits offensive linemen and look at how many of them constantly go into the first round or, or just blue chip guys. They seem to not have the physicality there. And to me, if you're playing Indiana and you're running the ball 30 times and you're only getting just over 100 yards, you got problems. What's going to happen when they play a good team? I mean, they're playing Indiana, who is not a stalwart in the Big Ten, and their defense is not known for stopping the run. And you were talking about the two runs of 19 and 17 yards, respectively. If you have to brag about a 19-yard run, you didn't have a good game on the ground. I I, I concur on that, but you know, what's even more scary, and let's add, I would say, Scott, Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Ekbuka are probably in your top 10 wide receivers in the country with Marvin Harrison Jr. probably being near the top, if not the top wide receiver. Agree, disagree? I agree. Harrison's a great player. He's probably in the top three or four. So on Saturday... Marvin Harrison Jr. had two receptions for 18 yards. And Ekbuka, who's some people have high, as high as in the top five, had three for 16. When you got elite perimeter athletes like that, you got to find ways to get the ball into their hands. Well, one of the things that I've learned in five decades of being on this planet, three of which have been covering college football, you got to get that ball in the hands of your playmakers. Whether it's a toss screen, whether it's a bubble screen, whether it's an air raid, you got to get your fast players involved in the game. Marvin Harris is being underutilized against Indiana. I don't understand how any team would underutilize a guy like Marvin Harris, and that has to be a focal point That's of the what offense. Colorado did. Colorado exactly. Colorado kept using Hunter. They were using Travis Hunter as much. They squeezed every bit of juice out of Travis Hunter that they possibly could. And Ohio State didn't. I don't know how many targets Harrison had, but it wasn't many. It wasn't a whole lot. I mean, he's, he's a very high conversion. Real quick before we go to the next topic, um, Alar for Penn State. What were your thoughts and impressions on that game, though, on NBC's first ever uh, Big Ten Saturday night? I really liked that kid. I think he showed great composure. Uh, he was on the big stage. Um, I, I I really think that the the opening touchdown that he had, the seventy two yard jaunt, uh, the run and catch, was was a phenomenal play. And I think that Penn State's going to go far in, in the LR regime. I think James Franklin has a great quarterback on his hands, and they're going to be able to make some noise in the Big Ten. I, 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 I think they could be the best team in the Big Ten. This is the, t- this is the time if Penn State's going to make that move. They have the talent at all levels. They finally have a quarterback. 
look, I, this is nothing against guys like Trace McSorley and Sean Clifford, and then in the Paterno era, guys like Daryl Clark and Michael Robinson, and I'll say Wally. Well, Fusina was elite. And where I was going with that is guys like Richie Riverboat Lucas, Chuck Fusina, Kerry Collins, they're few and far between. Penn State's had some elite quarterbacks come in there. Um, And Scott, you probably remember back in the late 80s when you know, Todd Marinovich and Tony Saka were the recruiting marvels and Penn State had gotten Tony Saka. His legacy of Penn State's one that can be argued about. You know, you get into the late 90s, Zach Wasserman was another workout wonder and Anthony Morelli in the early 2000s. Christian Hackenberg got handcuffed because of the sanctions and the Sandusky scandal. But this might be the time that a five-star quarterback for Penn State really plays out. And if it does play out, Penn State might be playing for a national championship and I might be getting a new hat, which would be uh, fantastic. I think, I, I, think I, I would agree with you that they're in the top four. They're definitely a playoff team this year. Uh, I, I, I like them coming out of the Big Ten. I think they're going to put on a clinic against some of these top schools, Michigan, Ohio State. I think they're going to have big games. I don't think that that their secondaries are going to be able to keep up with the speed that Penn State has. That was one thing that impressed me Saturday night was the way they swarmed to the football and the way their skill players have have top-notch speed. The one thing Penn State has to watch out for is the physicality up the center. West Virginia was able to exploit that and exploit that well. C.J. Donaldson did really well going after Devon Ellis, Hakeem Beeman, and uh, Zane Durant. And that, if Penn State can't get that handled, it's going to be another long day against Michigan because Michigan has the athletes to make you pay. West Virginia does not. And... J.J. McCarthy's infinitely better than Garrett Green. You know, the perimeter athletes, it's not even a competition. And even at the running back and running back position, Donaldson's a fine running back, but Michigan's deeper. And look, the West Virginia offensive line's a top 10 unit in the country. Zach Frazier's going to be playing on Sundays. I just don't feel that if there's one hole for Penn State, it's it's right there at the defensive tackle position. If if PJ Mustafer had another year of eligibility, I would feel pretty bullish about Penn State right now. I'm feeling real good about Penn State. I I, I think they're gonna they're gonna uh, surprise a lot of teams, and I think that they do have the juice and they have the players. I don't know if you're gonna get another hat this year, but I I think you're gonna be one of the four. I, and I would take that until we find out if Penn State is one of those four. We'll wait and see. But let's go to the West Coast here and take a look at two key things that happen over the week. Let's look at the quarterbacking situation uh, first here, and then we'll discuss, you know, Stanford and Cal and and. Washington State and Oregon State. So Caleb Williams continues to marvel. 
but Michael Penix Jr. had a day for himself against Boise State that included four touchdowns in the second quarter. Five touchdowns overall, completed nearly 75% of his passes, over 400 yards passing. I really feel, and I said this on the on the Bailey show, that when and and Scott, you know, in all your time in covering sports, the bullshit uh, stats they come up with, you know, the best to do it in this zone or whatnot. I'm gonna say the best quarterback in a country when they're in the zone and just feeling it. I don't think anybody's better than Michael Penix Jr. That second quarter left a good impression on me. What are your thoughts on Williams and Penix? Well, you and I wrote for Mike Farrell Sports, we debated the Heisman Trophy. Mm-hmm. And you took Caleb Williams and I, I took did. the field. And I took the field. And I've got Michael Penix Jr. in my top five. I think he's the best quarterback in the country. Uh, and I, I, I say that with no reservation. I, I think he does a lot with less. And I think Washington has, has a, as good a team this year as they've had in a while. Uh, he destroyed a good Boise state team today. And it's, 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 it's going to be a hell of a race coming down the wire, but you got some super quarterbacks in the pack 10. Oh, absolutely. That conference is abs- absolutely loaded. I don't – is there – was there really any bad quarterbacking play in that conference over the weekend? And I got to say no. You can even go to other schools and say Arizona State, uh, Rashada looked – you know, it was rough for the former five-star quarterback, but he looked good. Dante Moore had some highlights for UCLA. Bo Nix, I mean – Grant you, they played Portland State and completely eviscerated them. Still, I'm sorry, go ahead. Still, though, even against Portland State, they put up 81 points over 700 yards of total offense. As Chris Peterson once eloquently said in in about college football, sometimes you got to recognize what role you are. You're either the table or you're on the menu. Portland state was the menu for Oregon on Saturday. Well, I think that the quarterback play uh, definitely has to be considered as the top, top quarterbacks in the country. Um, I think Penix had a great game. I, I really like uh, the, this kid from UCLA, Dante Moore. I watched their game three times this week. And uh, I just saw a kid that's got a few flaws, but he, he's a true freshman. And he's going to be able to do a lot down the stretch for UCLA. I think Chip Kelly found a winner. I think he has as well. And I think it's going to be interesting as those teams move over to the big 10 with these elite quarterbacks, how that will transition. Speaking of moving into conferences, I know we touched base on the last episode, but now that it's official, let's have some brief thoughts about Stanford, Cal and SMU to the ACC. Scott, your thoughts. 
I don't like it. I'm very much against it. Uh, I, I know that I wouldn't want uh, to make that east-west trek a couple of times a year. Uh, I just don't see it being profitable, and, and I don't see it being necessary. The ACC is not a bad conference, even if FSU and Clemson pull out in 25 or 26. Uh, I, I think that it's still a, a good conference. Uh, nobody else is going to leave because no one else is going to pay the freight. But for a team like Miami, who is as far south as and as far east as you can get to travel to Stanford, that, that, that's a major issue. And the lesser non-revenue sports, they're going to have problems as well. I think they, they will. The compromise is Dallas is going to be the hub for Olympic sports. Let's see how long that lasts and what's the impact of that. For me, what excites me about this is SMU returning to power football. You, I mentioned this on the Bailey show, and it really goes to show how powerful football is. SMU recognized this was a now or never moment to get back into the power ranks. And the fact that they're forfeiting media revenue, we're going to just say for this podcast, and it's probably not too far off, they would have at least a 25 to $30 million revenue share from the ACC. They're going nine years without it. They're willing to fundraise and do everything else to forgo that money to just get into power football. And the fact that they're willing to to not take in, – in, in, we Scott and I both are college-educated folks, and even if you're not college-educated, I think we all can say, find me a school who doesn't take money – you, the, the answer is that doesn't exist. So this is the one rare exception, a school saying, hey, we don't we don't need the two hundred and fifty million dollars. We'll we'll figure it out on our own. We just want to play power football. But from a classic perspective, you know, this is a program that prior to Daryl Royal getting to Texas, the the power program in the state of Texas and in the Southwest Conference was SMU. And when you saw the Pony Express in the 80s, and I know you saw them, Scott, and I know I, I watched some of their classic games. I sure, surely saw the 30 for 30 Pony Excess, which is, I highly recommend if you've never seen it, please watch it. I think that's the only thing I'm taking away from this because if SMU with its Boulevard Collective can leverage NIL right and they can leverage Texas and they can leverage the Metroplex and they can get into areas and attract the elite athletes. They, they're close to Jerry world. This is something that could impact both Texas, Texas A&M and Oklahoma recruiting. SMU could be back on the map. And this is a program that if they get running, watch out. In my opinion, SMU and Rick Hart, who's their athletic director, made the biggest mistake because SMU needs that money to fund non-revenue sports. 
I want to know what's going to happen with their Title IX programs and how they're going to suffer. And that's definitely something that we'll be monitoring as, and you know, and this is going to happen just as early as next year. So we're going to be able to see right away the impact of this decision. Any closing thoughts in the dog bowl, Scott? Dog bowl, you, you know, it, it was, it was a big week. There was a lot of great football. Uh, I, I, I was in attendance at the Miami game and in between lightning delays, I think they, they played very well. Um, but uh, it was a good week. It, it was a real solid week. And did we find out who the real Miami is? Well, Brett Gabbert came out the other day at his press conference, who's the starting quarterback for Miami of Ohio. And there is no Miami of Ohio, by the way. There is no city in Miami. Uh, there is no city in Ohio named Miami. It's in Oxford. He said, he said we're going to prove that the real Miami is in Oxford, Mississippi, is in Oxford, Ohio. I'm sorry. And they they took it to him. Gabbard played well. He had a, he had a very good game, but he he did what was expected. And uh, we we have a situation where the Miami Hurricanes came out and played real well, and they depended on a lot of their younger guys. And I, and again. It... Is there any key takeaways you would take from the Hurricanes from that week one game against Miami? Yes. That offensive line, they are grown men. They're young, but they are grown men. Matt Lee at center, uh, Francis Mauagoa at tackle. Uh, these that are kids. Mauagoa was a huge win for Crystal Ball. That was a fight that kid he's out of i believe massachusetts that was between bill o'brien who's a andover massachusetts native was recruiting him for alabama that was a major win and major steal for crystal ball i mean when you when when you've got samson pancake honcho on one side and you've got Malagoa on the other side and you got matt lee at center one thing that i realized with those guys is they actually block up field when the running backs go off and they, they'll take a three yard run. They're, they're ahead of the ball and they're blocking like hell. They opened up holes for Mark Fletcher, a freshman running back from American heritage that you could drive a truck through. If you saw his 26 yard touchdown jaunt, he was untouchable. He walked in. Hey, and that is the beauty of the big fellas up front. When they make holes that big, it makes the running back look good. Scott, let's save that energy about Miami. Let's transition out of the dog bowl and let's get the classic bone here. Let's talk right now about Texas A&M Miami. That's coming up this Saturday here. You know, one of the things that, you know, you're really high on is obviously that offensive line and we'll probably get more into it, but one of the more, and I'm going to say this as an outsider who's had to write several of these articles and I hope to never write one for a long, long time. 
is Miami being back. And it's always, it's been spewed for the last two decades almost. You know, Miami is back, you know, after the Peach Bowl demolition by LSU that killed that early run of the 2000s there. But since that game, you know, you heard it when they upset Oklahoma, when say it without Sam Bradford, I think that was in 2009, Al Golden had a few moments and people thought he was there and they were ranked high. I think in 2013, they had that highly anticipated Florida state Miami showdown that ended ugly. Um, Mark Richt teased it a little bit. Is this program ever really going to come back, Scott? Well, you're not going to hear me say that Miami's back. I'm going to take Mario Cristobal's word and say Miami is back to work. They're actually working at getting better. They have a football staff that they've never had before. They have a true staff. They have analysts. They're looking at analytics. They're recruiting their asses off. They're going all over the country to find the best players. And that's what they did in the past. They're also getting great talent out of their own backyard. They're keeping players home. Ray Ray Joseph had a very good game, his his first game. You know, he was a top receiver coming out of the state of Florida. Reuben Bain on the defensive line. He, he, he was a top 10 defensive lineman. He was in ESPN 100. Do you feel that Crystal Ball is hearkening back and taking a page out of the Godfather's playbook of getting Miami back? And I know with Crystal Ball, he has a great AD in Dan Radakovich. Um, is Crystal Ball taking some? tips from Schnellenberger and what Schnellenberger did to make Miami a juggernaut. Well, he's definitely taking the state of Miami mentality uh, where you go up to the I-4 corridor and you say, we're, we're going to box this off and this is going to be where we are going to get our top recruits and we're not going to let them leave the state. Uh, he is following Schnellenberger's pattern of how he built the program. And the thing that I like the most is that Miami's biggest problems in years past have been in the trenches. They always had quarterbacks with dirty jerseys, and it never looked good. And they always had a defense that couldn't stop the run. This year, I think with the players that they brought in from the portal and the rookies that came in as incoming freshmen, I think they've really shored up the trenches and I saw it sat on Friday night. And I think that uh, this team has a lot of potential. I'm not going to say they're going to win the ACC, but I think they're going to win a lot of football games. One of the things that has me really curious about them again with, with Miami is you brought up about the offensive line and when they landed Maui Goa, I'm, I'm hopefully I'm saying the guy's name, right? It's Francis Maui Goa. That's how, until I am told, right. 
that's how I'm going to roll with it. You had me excited because you you talked about how dominant the offensive line was. So that's what Cristobal did over in Oregon. He got the great offensive linemen in place and got them to a point of like Justin Herbert look like you know you saw him in pregame warming up look great and at the end of the game whenever the sideline reporter was talking to him after the game it looked like nobody touched him when you look back at those classic Miami teams you know Steve Walsh you know in a lot of the games that I've watched from the 80s Steve Walsh looks like he didn't need to throw his jersey in the laundry pile Gino Toretta definitely never had to throw his jersey in the laundry pile neither did Vinny really that much unless he decided to run on a play um Ken Dorsey in the early 2000s no one touched him Uh, so the point I'm getting at is if you're getting these elite offensive linemen and then you get an elite quarterback you're gonna get back rather quickly and your back to work mentality is going to pay off here they are definitely back to work. And, you know, you talk about 2000 and Kenny Dorsey. You know, you, you got to look at that offensive line. You had a Remington Award winner in Britt Romberg. You had Bryant McKinney. Uh, you put those two on any offensive line, you're going to keep your quarterback set. So my question to you is, is Tyler Van Dyke – what did you take away from his from the quarterback position uh, against Miami? Well, I think you have to look at what the intentions were. They kept it very vanilla. They didn't want to show Texas A&M any of their wrinkles in their offense. You know, they they ran 61 plays and only 25 of them were passes. So I think that you have to look at the game in its proper perspective and say Van Dyke managed the game very well. He completed passes he needed to complete to keep drives going. He had the 44-yard touchdown to Colby Young, which you got to credit that offensive line for blocking up field and the receivers blocking up field. Um I'm going to reserve judgment on TVD until after the Texas A&M game. And he's done with uh, Shamar Stewart and, and, and that crowd. And I think that we uh, have a lot to prove still in Miami. And this weekend is going to be the telltale. We'll be able to gauge how Miami improved this week at home against Texas A&M. Would this be a signature win for Cristobal? Absolutely. He didn't really have one last year, and I would hardly call Miami of Ohio a, a signature win. But if he could beat Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M, he, you got to remember, last year Miami outplayed Texas A&M. They just had a lot of mental mistakes, and the offensive line broke down. And, and and they lost the game in the second half. This is a game that Miami can win. That game was painful last year. And I remember covering that game. 
that just seemed like a game nobody wanted that win whatsoever. To me, the best player on the field last year it was the AM running back uh Devin Achain, who I think's now in the NFL. And he was the third round pick of the Dolphins. I thought he got to Miami. I wasn't a hundred percent sure. But I just remember watching that game. Max Johnson was a tire fire. And Tyler Van Dyke, who all last offseason was everyone's dark horse Heisman. It was like the trendy pick. And I just remember when I, watching this game and I, the only other person on the field to me that played at all that I felt was worthy of anything was Tyreek Stevenson, who was a great DB for Miami last few years. I think he came over via the portal from Georgia to the Hurricanes. He just shut down everything in his path, but it was it was a brutal game all the way around. And the the thing I think that frustrated me the most, Scott, my and this may have been one of George, uh, Josh Gaddis's best offensive play calling games in Miami. He didn't have many. He's no longer with the Canes. I think he's in Maryland now. Miami had 27 first downs. They had almost 400 yards of total offense, and they were balanced. 200 pass, 200 rush. They had some costly penalties. The game was overly clean. You know, there was a turnover by the Canes. You could probably say that that did them in. And they let in time of possession, but they managed to lose the game because they couldn't get touchdowns instead of field goals. Um, I just, I don't know how to feel about Miami going into this one. If they're, uh, they got the home field advantage. I just don't know how to feel about them and, and whatnot. And I, I really do think Texas A&M might be even a little bit more prepared for this one. What's your thoughts on Jimbo Fisher here heading into this one? Where do you think he stands with the Aggies, considering the tire fire, dumpster fire that he had last year? Well, he's not going anywhere. He's got a tremendous buyout. And uh, Texas A&M doesn't have the money to buy him out and then hire a quality coach. Uh, They're going to have a garage sale if they do that. And I don't like the fact that Texas A&M uh is is giving Jimbo all this money and they're getting nothing in return. You know, they're the 23rd ranked team in the country preseason. I think they that, that that's that's a value that's too high. I don't think they're a top 25 team. I don't either. And I think when you're paying this guy and, and here's the thing, I'm trying to get his his buyout figures here. I think it's $86 million. And the, I think right now at the, after this season, it's 77. I think at the end of last year's 86, if you're paying a guy this amount of money, you're not paying him to go eight and four. I'm sorry. Look at Mario Cristobal. Miami is paying him $80 million. 
they are expecting national championships. They are expecting ACC championships. They're patient. They know they have to, it's going to take a while to get there, but they see it. They see the productivity. With Jimbo Fisher, all you're seeing is his magnificent ego. He talks a good game to the media, but his team doesn't back it up. They played New Mexico State this week. They were 38-point favorites. Uh, What are they going to accomplish in a game like that? They didn't even look that good. I I don't. I, I didn't get a chance to catch them over the week, and I read some of their game notes, and so I'm a little bit familiar with it, but I really don't think Jimbo's going to last. And I think it's going to be, whether it's Mel Tucker self-destructing at Michigan State or Jimbo Fisher down at College Station, at some point, some, one of these programs is going – a big time booster is going to put up the 50 or $60 million to make this coach go away. And really, you know, from an ethical standpoint, you're paying a guy one person because they're not winning enough football games money to go away. Can you imagine what, you know, in Jimbo's case, $77 million for the general student body I'm willing to bet that would pay for easily 3,500 to 4,000 kids tuition fully for a year at Texas A&M. And you're, yeah. And you're going to say, Oh, we're just going to pay this out. So that person go away. So we can find another coach who can win more football games, but you got these kids that are killing themselves for an education, but can't have a tuition thing. I think that's just, it's going to get these schools into troubles because eventually at some point Congress is going to say, I get that there's TV dollars and this is athletic revenue and whatnot, but why are we spending all this money for a person to blow a whistle and tell, tell some kids, Hey, jump higher, cut this route faster, hit here. But I, I'm not trying to marginalize coaching. But in the same time, this is an obscene amount of money. And at some point, one of these programs is going to bite the bullet because of some reason, and it's going to just be mass hysteria. And I can see it being Texas A&M. I don't know about that. That's just an awful lot of money. I, I see Napier going before I see Fisher going. But the problem with Napier's buyout is is he doesn't have an offset clause. You know, normally with a coach's buyout, uh, they pay the salary, but if they get a new job, they get to deduct that salary from the remaining balance. Napier doesn't have that in his contract. So Florida is going to end up eating the whole contract, regardless of whether he gets another job or not. So my question to you is, much like I had for Napier, do you think Jimbo Fisher can salvage his time at Texas A&M? And if he doesn't, do you think he can be what he was early in his tenure with Florida State? 
Well, I think a lot of things changed in Jimbo Fisher's personal life. Uh, he went through a tough divorce back when he was at Florida State. And he wasn't the he hasn't been the same coach since he got divorced. Yeah, I don't think he's had a tremendous season or had any major accomplishments since he and his wife Candy divorced. I've heard that, and I think it's going to be interesting what he, he's able to do because right now. It's a very pivotal time. I really think he's one of the sharper minds in the game. I mean, he's one that, look, he's proven he can win a national championship at Florida State. He won all those big games for that program. He worked for Nick Saban, helped LSU win a national title. So I think there's something there for him. I just feel that this is a year that, AM fans, they need to see nine wins. And that's, I think, the number to kind of cool his seat is if they see nine wins and like the three losses are competitive, like there isn't a bad loss, that's going to be what keeps everyone going. And we could talk more about the, the, this in the, in the, in the prediction segment, but I'd like to, talk a little bit about Howard Schnellenberger because he is the godfather. And I know we're going to do a little bit more in depth on him when Miami plays Louisville, because those teams are playing for the Schnellenberger trophy. Um, My question to you is, and I'll probably ask it again. Do you feel that the College Football Hall of Fame needs to adjust its requirements for a coach. Because right now, Howard Schnellenberger has 0% shot to make the College Football Hall of Fame. What's your thoughts on that? I think Howard Schnellenberger has proven that he's a Hall of Fame coach. And I understand he doesn't meet these... statistical minimums uh, that the College Hall of Fame requires. But look at what he's accomplished. He's taken three or four programs and turned them around. He started FAU's program from the ground up, and they're a formidable team. He raised enough money for them to have their own stadium on campus. And it's a beautiful facility. Look at what he did at Louisville. I still remember the Fiesta Bowl. Like it was yesterday. Against Alabama. Yep. Uh, my friend John Bach played in that game. And uh, that that was one of his happiest moments. He, he went on to play for the Jets and the Dolphins. But he... he he loves Howard Schnellenberger. He considered him to be a second father. So just so that way our listeners know what we're talking about with coaches for the College Football Hall of Fame is a coach 
must have coached at least 10 seasons or is at least 75 years old when 60% of his games is another requirement. And this is the same requirement that will hold Mike Leach out. He also, they have to coach in, if they don't have 10 seasons in, at least 100 games coached in, which Schnellenberger has with ease and so does Leach. But the fact is, the 600 winning percentage is what's holding them out. And to me, I've always felt this. A Hall of Fame coach, a Hall of Fame anything, there shouldn't be a statistical rule to be put there. Are there some that are implied? Yes. You know, in baseball, the guy hits 3,000 hits. He's pretty much a lock for the Hall of Fame. You know, in hockey, if someone gets 500 goals, it's a lock. You know, but there's not really like a minimum threshold. It's like you have to look at the impact on the game. And I don't think you can tell, have a complete story this game and have within the fabric and miss guys like Schnellenberger and Mike Leach. And I think that's a problem. Hopefully, as members of the Football Writers Association of America, if there's ever a ballot on this, we can help influence and change that. Well, maybe it's something we need to bring up at the annual meeting. We shall. And that it should be a, a lively conversation. Let's jump into the next big subject here of the evening, and that's going to probably be the main event game of the weekend, Texas and Alabama. And when you just say those two names, you know something's good's going to happen. So, Let's riff on a few current topics and work our way to a, a good classic conversation here. Scott, what's what do you feel is Nick Saban's future beyond this year? I think he's going to have a problem uh, this year. He just doesn't have the horses that he usually has. And when Alabama doesn't have the horses, their recruiting suffers. Well, the recruiting's been tops the last few years, and, it, and it's still strong going into this year. I think with Saban is things like NIL, things like the transfer portal, the expansion carousel. I really think these things... and. I will say the expansion carousel and roulette or whatever nickname you want to give it. I think it's a temporary thing and it's going to pop up every now and again. It's like, where did we land to earn this horrible ride on this? And right now, I think he knows at some point you have Texas and Oklahoma joining the conference. And that's the emphasis that Greg Sankey has said. But at some point, there's going to be the Florida State question. Clemson's involved, and so is North Carolina. The Big Ten just expanded to 18. The Big 12 is just as big. The ACC is just as big, which puts the SEC as the, as the small team on the totem pole out of all of it, even though it's probably 
the strongest league of them all, there's going to have to be some sort of counter. When you look at Saban in Alabama, he's going to be 72, I believe, this year and on Halloween. And he's defied time a little bit because he's been given some like let's be honest scott because you you and i have followed college football since time began has there ever been a time or period in in major college football history in in the bowl system where teams have gotten so many mulligans with these playoffs and championship games and you know there hasn't no and I'm not trying to marginalize Nick Saban. What, why I consider him the the greatest coaches of all time is when afforded these opportunities, he maximizes on them. And Alabama usually comes away with the trophy. You know, we can talk about if Florida State had this, what would have Bobby Bowden look like? Or Joe Paterno, or any classic coach from the past. Tom Osborne would be another good one. Barry Switzer, you know, John McKay, John Robinson in Southern Cal. But with Saban, we have this. I really think his future is going to be limited, you know, and I feel that the end's coming a lot sooner. I think if it were up to him, when a coach is went going 11 and 1, 12 and 0 every year, you can coach forever. I can coach forever. You can coach forever, Scott, with doing that. It's getting harder. And I don't think, and, you know, Bobby Bowden said this later in his career, instead of Joe Paterno, is they were ruthless early on. And, and you know, we, we can pull up many highlights of Nick Saban being ruthless. But as they get older, you soften a little bit because you have a newer perspective on life. And the way I look at it is I don't think Saban wants to hang around and just collect wins. I mean, if he wants to pass Joe Paterno on the all-times wins list, I he could definitely make a run for it. I think he's going to pass him in the, in the postseason bowl win or whatever they're going to call this era because look if you're playing two and three games bowl games a year and you're winning them you're going to catch Paterna pretty quickly and he's right there for it um but I don't think he wants to hang around going nine and three ten and two every year I don't think that's fun for him and I really think he's going to be done here I'm going to say within two or three years. He has accomplished so much as a coach that he deserves to go out with dignity and respect, unlike Bobby Bowden was treated at Florida State or Joe Paterno was treated at Penn State. But I think he's going to want to enjoy his golden years, and he's not going to want to run around with a whistle while he's 76 years old. No, I, I think, think you're he, right. He, he's going to want to go to the to the beach house with Miss Terry, with the grandkids, get on the, the pontoon, go on there, and just enjoy life. You know, one of the things 
I have in common with Nick Saban is our affinity for the Rolling Stones. And I really think he wants to put on Gimme Shelter anytime he wants. And it's not just for a celebration. It's just to jam out. And I really think he's at that point in life where, you know, I think he wants to get win 300. I think that means something to be associated with guys like Joe Paterno and Bobby Bowden and Amos Alonzo Stagg and Pop Warner and Bear Bryant. I think that means something to him. And I think he's sitting at about 285. So I think within three years, he will have that, you know, he may get a new burst of energy in that time, but it's, you know, when you get to like 75, you know, if I'm Kirby smart, I'm looking at a kid, no matter how much NIL Alabama will offer you to sign the dotted line, you know, Nick Saban's still 75 years old. He can't guarantee he's going to be there four years. Is he going to be 79 or 80 years old whenever you're going to play? You know, yeah, pretty much, or at least governor of Alabama. He probably beat Kay Ivey. So it'll, it'll be interesting. Um, Let's ask this question, Scott. Nick Saban versus Bear Bryant. Who do you got? That's a real tough question because they both coached in different eras under different rules. Uh, you know, Bear Bryant was was the first to segregate Alabama football. And he also had unlimited scholarships. Yes. You know, he he allowed African-American football players to be on scholarship and play at the University of Alabama. Uh, I think when you look at the overall body of work, uh, you got to look at Saban's national championships and the players that he's put into the NFL and the Heisman winners that he's had. I think he is statistically numerically, when you look at the analytics, he's the better of the two, but as far as who is a better coach, I'm going to have to go with bear Bryant. For me, when I visit my friends down in Alabama and one of them is really good friends with John Hanna, who is an immortal in her offensive lineman, Alabama immortal. I've been always told, because I've asked the Saban versus Brian, you know, Saban is how they put it is, is it's like a kiss with the devil and it's the devil, you know, and it's not that, you know, Saban's done a lot of great things in Alabama. So I want to preface this before I say this, a lot of this has to do with Jimmy Sexton and the Texas situation, but some people have told me and they believe this. So it's not necessarily what I believe, but I can buy some of this. 
for Nick Saban, it's always it's always been maybe looking for that next edge. And is he all in at Alabama or not? And I think at this point, he's all in because, you know, he's 71. What more? But some for some people, they still hold that Texas flirtation against them. And they look at Bear Bryant and they go, Bear played at Alabama. He played opposite of Don Hudson. So for those who, like Peter King would probably lose his mind because I just name dropped Don Hudson. Um, NFL all-century player who held the touchdown record for almost 50 years before Steve Largent broke it. So for those who don't know, you got that education. Um, Bear Bryant loved Alabama. When Alabama needed help and he left the Texas A&M job for Alabama, Mama called. And he won six national championships at Alabama. He won 14 SEC championships and was a 12-time SEC coach of the year. He will always be synonymous with Alabama. And I don't think anyone – I think it's always going to be a generational argument between Bama fans, between Bryant and Saban. For me, and it's – I have the highest of highest respects for Bryant. Um. One of the posters that I have in my room is from the 75 Sugar Bowl when Penn State went down and played Alabama. And it's a it's a promo poster for the bowl game. And it's it's the Masters of Defense. One side Paterno, the other side Bear Bryant. It was, I think, the first Sugar Bowl in the Superdome, if I'm not mistaken. And way down yonder in New Orleans. And, you know, I hold that if any, but I go with, I give the edge to Saban and I do it because you have 85 players. You're constantly being scrutinized. You have social media. You have the constant pressure to win at all costs and at the highest level. And for the longest of time, Saban had more championships won, meaning national championships, conference championships, than losses at a for a period of stretch at Alabama. He passed Paterno in all-time ranked wins. He has the one of the completest, most secure resumes. You know, I'm going to give the slight edge to Nick Saban. But I can easily be influenced for Bear Bryant. It's not there's this 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 concrete isn't firm and hard yet. I get you six pack, and I convince you. Maybe when I come down to Miami, we can have that conversation. And speaking of Miami, this takes us to the next topic when we talk Bear Bryant and Daryl Royal. Now. This is pre this game predates when Bear Bryant went to visit Daryl Royal to learn the wishbone. But this may have been one of the more consequential games in college football. And Scott, this may even predate you a little bit in your following, but what do you recollect or know about the 65 Orange Bowl? Wow. You know, I, I've been called an old man a few times, but 
that predates my birth. <laughs> well, let me paint a picture first. This, I'm going to be Bob Ross right now. We're going to run the colors at the bottom of the screen. I put, I'm going to put the liquid white on the canvas here, and I'm going to just start with the alizarin crimson and the phthalo blue and makes make my happy mountain and trees and all that. So I want to paint a picture in the American landscape in 1965 for this game. NBC. Now, it, there was no streaming back then. Hopefully those who listen to this understand that. But we got to set the ground rules in case people don't. Most people gather their television from over-the-air waves antenna. So... And you had the three major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. The Orange Bowl in Miami was able to get the Southeastern Conference champion, Alabama, and the Southwestern Conference champion in Texas to meet in this Titanic clash. And this is what they did. And this is what makes this historic. They decided to put this game in prime time to give you some perspective about that. This game predates the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl didn't really make it to prime time until the 80s. Because I can remember there were a lot of afternoon, you know, Super Bowls throughout the 70s. So this game not only predates the Super Bowl, but this is before it was even the Super Bowl was even in prime time. Let me add another wrinkle to this. The first night game of the World Series. Now, in, in the 1960s, baseball was king. The first night game in the World Series was in 1971. So this predates even that. So to understand the broadcasting history of this, to put a college football game in primetime television for the first time involving these two programs speaks volumes. And the question going into that game, you know, Steve Sloan had taken over for an injured Joe Namath earlier in the season because Namath had a knee injury. Is Would Namath have any parts of that game? And... Bear Bryant decided, no, this is Steve Sloan's game. But as you know, Scott, the best laid plans sometimes don't work out as much. And Texas took a 14-0 lead early against Alabama. And Alabama had no momentum and wasn't going anywhere. So Bear decided to put in Joe Willie Namath pride of beaver falls back in and on the first possession that he gets put in on alabama goes on a 14 play 87 yard drive to cut the deficit to 14 7 texas responded to make it 21 7 namath in the third quarter early on locates ray perkins for a touchdown to make it 21 14 they have another long drive they make it 21 17 so, in the second half, Alabama shuts out Texas. They go on a long drive, and it's the end of the game. And America's hoping that Namath can seal the comeback. 
of all places in the Orange Bowl, which would be the setting for Super Bowl three, this predates that. It's it's a critical time and Namath and Atai do not know what to call and they call a timeout. Namath goes to the sidelines and there's a little bit of conversation with Bear Bryant and they're not sure what to call, but Scott, do you want to take a shot in the dark here? Who was the one who decided, who told Namath that he needed to take it and run it into the end zone? Bear Bryant. Sh- nope. You know who it was? Steve Sloan. Nope. The coach that the coach that told him that Namath, you need to take it and you need to run it up the gut. The Godfather himself, Howard Schnellenberger. Great story. So Namath is going in knowing he's doing a quarterback keeper, but Texas had an all-time linebacker. Um, played for the Atlanta Falcons. His name was Tommy Novus, and he was as good of a college quarterback. I mean, linebackers there there was. I mean, a lot of people like to talk Dick Butkus. You know, I got nothing against the guy from Illinois, but Novus is j- right up there. Novus kind of anticipated it, and one of the great bowl game moments is when Novus and Namath met on the goal line and and a pile was created and it led to a lot of uncertainty. Did Namath make it in? Did Nobis stop him? One ref said he was in one ref said that, that, that he did not make it in and the refs huddle and quorum Alabama and Namath were short in Texas won 21 17. Texas players will often say Namath kind of climbed on them to get into the end zone. Namath asserts that he got in and scored. It's one of those all-time classic games. And to me, it's what defines the series because you have not only Bear Bryant and Daryl Royal, who are all-time legends in them, in themselves, but you had the wishbone. You had this game. Texas dominated this series. It wasn't until... The 2009 season for the national championship that Alabama got its first win against Texas. Even Bear Bryant never beat Texas. I think the best he ever did was got a tie. I think he was like 0-3 against them. So Texas always had that upper hand. So my question to you, Scott, kind of flipping it to a Texas flavor What's your thoughts on the on the all time legend that is Daryl Royal? Well, he, he he's one of the best. I mean, you've got to look at him when you look at some of the other coaches that you think are legendary. Daryl Royal has to be in that group. When when I tell people how legendary Daryl Royal is. And this is the three degrees of separation. You ready for this one, Scott? Go for it. You know who Bernie Beerman is, right? The the coach from Minnesota. Yes. He won three national titles. 
he had a player who he mentored, taught him the game, everything. That coach was Bud Wilkinson that he mentored as a player and a coach. Bud Wilkinson mentored a quarterback in the in early in his tenure by the name of Daryl Royal. Daryl Royal's in, in both the Texas Longhorns Hall of Fame and the Oklahoma Sooners Hall of Fame. He quarterbacked Oklahoma to an 11-0 season in 49. So think about that. These are the all-time coaching immortals. Beerman, Wilkinson, Royal. Daryl Royal was, was an ultimate magician and very creative. The wishbone is his ultimate gift to the game and every coach stole it and and whatnot. And I, I, the one thing I always tell people about what makes Daryl Royal an amazing coach is when you went up against those Texas teams, he, he was like Woody Hayes of the South. he, I mean, he he didn't mind the past, but he wanted to. He really wanted to beat you on the ground, and he embraced the physicality of it. And he he often lived by Woody's three things can happen when you pass, and two of them are bad, and that's it. And that's what makes the '69 game of the century against Arkansas weird because the play that won it for him or helped them win it or set up it was a pass outside of that it was very run first to me when we talk coaching immortals daryl royals on that short list he dominated the southwest conference he won 11 southwest conference titles he won three national titles in the 60s this is a guy that I often feel people when you when they're doing top tens or even top twenties, they forget how legendary Royal was. And I I the fact that Bear Bryant couldn't beat him, I think speaks volumes. I think you're right. You know, Bear Bryant beat everyone else but couldn't beat Daryl Royal. And that says something. So let's transition from where Royal dominated the bear. Steve Sarkeesian's looking to become the second Saban disciple. Wait, the third Saban disciple, because Jimbo Fisher and Kirby Smart got wins against Saban. He's looking to become the third one to get a win against the mentor. And this may be one of the stronger teams that he's has, you know, at all levels, he has talent. The quarterbacks are amazing. What's your thoughts on Steve Sarkeesian, Scott? I give Sarkeesian a lot of credit 
for coming back to the game the way he did. He he was sort of blacklisted after he was done at USC. And uh, we know the problems that he had there. And we don't have to go into them. But he came back. He was an analyst for Alabama. Then he became offensive coordinator when, when Kiffin left. Uh I have a lot of respect for him as a human being. Uh, as a football coach, I think the jury is still out. I'm not sold on this Texas team. I think I realize, I realize that they have a high ranking and that they uh, had a good season opening victory, but I, I, I'm not sold on their on their offense. I think between Quinn Ewers and 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 Arch Manning, I don't think you have a starting quarterback between the two of them. I think he has a starter, and I really like the linebacker Jalen Ford a lot, and I like the receivers that he has. I think Xavier Worthy's healthy. I like the tight end Jatavion Sanders. I think this is going to be a fun game. I think Sarkeesian needs in his coaching resume, if you start looking through, it's been a while since he's had a signature win. I think the last time you could say he had a legitimate signature win was when he was at Washington and got that win over Pete Carroll's Southern California Trojans. He got he earned the nickname in Seattle as Seven Win Steve because he he constantly flirted. He always had the ability to beat USC, but couldn't beat anything more than that. Then he took the USC job, and that didn't end well for him. And he rehabilitated, and guys like Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban took, allowed him to rehabilitate professionally at Alabama, and he took advantage of it, had a Broyles Award-winning season. But I think as a head coach, he needs to get, take that next step because right now, this is pro. This is as good or uh, talented that Texas has had in a long time. This is this team, in my opinion, is better than the Sam Ellinger, we're back Sugar Bowl winning Texas team from a few years ago under Tom Herman. And some of the these teams are a lot better than what Charlie Strong had and better than some of the last of the Mac Brown era team. So we're getting back into the two thousands when Mac Brown had to always win in 10 or 11 games a year. That was so, when Mac Brown was just old. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is a critical junction for Sarkeesian. In my opinion, he had Saban beat last year and they felt, it fell apart late. I mean, you know, they lost Ewers in the game, but it was definitely the story early in the season last year with Texas coming so close in a 20-19 game at home. They got to go to Bryant-Denny. A win there for Texas almost launches them, you know, and it's nothing against Coach Sanders' job at Colorado or – what Florida state did against LSU. If Texas beats Alabama, this would be the tone setter early on in the season. I agree. I think it's, it's a big matchup. I mean, it would really give Sarkeesian a shot in the arm. And I think it would also help recruiting 
for him to be a, another disciple to beat the Godfather. But uh, I just I just don't see it happening. I think it'll be a close game, but I just don't see. I, I, I know we're going to have predictions later, but I just see uh, Texas not being as solid as Alabama is. So I think it's going to be a close game. We'll get into it in the prediction segment, but I do feel it's going to be one entertaining game. So our next classic bones, we're going to push just, we're going to push the USC Stanford conversation in the prediction segment. And we're going to talk a little backyard brawl in the prediction segment. Uh, But I'd like to give proper respect to the third Saturday in September rivalry, a rivalry that was a, is a newish rivalry kind of shocking that it really became one big in the nineties and it wasn't played much before, but I would be remiss if we really didn't take a nice deep dive into Tennessee and Florida, Scott Fulmer Spurrier defined the sec in the nineties. What memories do you have of, of those games? I remember Steve Spurrier throwing his visor down a lot. <laughs> oh man, did he I remember, ever? I remember Peyton Manning leading Rocky Top. I remember all of Spurrier's disses of Tennessee. You can't spell citrus without UT. Peyton came back for to be a three-time Citrus Bowl player of the game. You know, to me, Bulber was almost a perfect foil for Spurrier because Spurrier, he was a cocky son of a gun, and Bulmer was more reserved, more matter-of-fact. And the crazy thing is, the reason this rivalry took off is when Johnny Majors had to rehabilitate from, uh, I think he had like heart issues in that, that held him out in either the 90 or 91 game. I think it was 91. No, I it's either 90 or 91. I can't remember which. Might have been 92. I'll have to look it up. No, it was 92. You know, Tennessee had just won an SEC championship in 90. Spurrier, and this is something to keep in mind, because some of the folks may not know this rivalry outside, and they may think this is a long-standing rivalry. It really isn't. Prior to 1990, they only had met 19 times. I want you to think about that, Scott. This is a cl- two classic SEC teams, and they only met 19 times up till 1990. Okay. Right. And so Majors has a decisive win in 90 that got him his uh, SEC championship there, his third one at, for Tennessee. So he's out for the 92 game. 
Florida's ranked number four in the nation. And this is one of those games that will forever live in the lore of this rivalry. Um, Florida just didn't seem to have it that day. And Tennessee was just responding all day to it. And I think this is the game that like it rained like no other in in this game. I'm looking it up real quick here because I would be No, the rain game was 95. But this was the game where where Shane Matthews had no answers and Johnny Majors being out. Philip Fulmer really had Heath Schuler ready to go and Tennessee upset him 31-14. And that blossomed this rivalry a rivalry that was pretty one-sided in a decade. Um, Spurrier won seven of eight in the next in the next one, but it led to some of the all-time uh, great moments, especially in the '98 game, the one where Tennessee finally broke a five-game winning uh, winning streak there. And I always tell people if you really want to know. If there was ever a time, because everyone remembers last season's Alabama-Tennessee game, how out, how Tennessee went unhinged when they won that game 52-49. If you ever wanted to think if Nealon sounded any louder, go back to the 98 game. And that game, when, when they, 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 they sealed the win on... A, a Collins Cooper missed field goal to make it deciding deciding the game is twenty to seventeen. That just sent that place into hysteria. Like I just tell people YouTube it because those people absolutely lost their minds. And that and, it, and what fueled that game is the previous year was Spurrier's infamous. Spelling citrus. You can't spell citrus without UT. And Peyton came back to be a three-time Citrus Bowl MVP. So that that game made made it a lot. Over the years, some weather hadn't was involved in it. Whether it was rain in in the first half, you have the issue over the fax gate over the. <laughs> over the issue about playbooks and I remember Jack's, that. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those great, great rivalries that I expect to get higher intensity as the years go on. Scott, any member, other members do you have of Tennessee and Florida? Um, I always remember, I like to study coaches. And I like to see what they bring to the table in a rivalry game. And Tennessee, Florida, even though they only played 19 times, 
prior to the 90s, you, you still have to consider it a rivalry game because they were both quality SEC teams. Mm-hmm. And I think you had Spurrier and Fulmer, two of the better coaches in the SEC at the, at the time. Uh I think they were like why it was like watching magicians at work. And they were always close games. They were always decided, I don't want to say always, but most of them were decided by a touchdown or less. And I just remember um that game always had an influence on the SEC championship. And in the latter years, Florida winning a national championship. The Danny Werfel team in 1996 is one of the more special teams. And as Bobby Bowden once said, the 96 part one, because part two wasn't so friendly in a sugar bowl. It wasn't so sweet for the Seminoles, but that, that ups 24, 21 win at Doak Campbell stadium is arguably the biggest win ever for Florida State at home in the regular season. Because it was a 1-2 matchup. Yes, it was. All right. So as we conclude here, the classic bone segment, before we get into the predictions corner here, um, Scott, what are you working on this week and over the next two weeks? Because just for scheduling uh, information, for I'm going to be in the UK for a bit. So it's going to be a little tough for me to follow college football. So, um, Scott, what are you going to be looking at over the next few weeks here? Well, I'm going to keep your chair warm over at Mike Farrell Sports. Uh, I'm going to uh, be looking at Dion in Colorado versus Nebraska. Uh, I'm going to break that game down. Uh, I've got Miami and Texas A&M. I'll be uh, previewing that game during the week and providing game coverage. Uh, I'm also working on a few other pieces that uh, will be out on Mike Farrell Sports, but uh, it, 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 it's going to be a good week. It's, it's, gonna, it's a good week for college football. Any, any week is a good week for college football. But this happens to have some some very good games. So for me, before I go to the UK, you're going to get some Texas Oklahoma, uh, Texas Oklahoma, Texas and Alabama coverage. I'm going to be previewing about when do you think the end is for Nick Saban. We're going to have something about Texas. We're going to take a look at Brian Kelly and uh, Billy Napier. I might throw in another article. For the dogs, I'm looking at potentially a Penn State article. I mean, I know they're playing Delaware, but it might be a little bit more concentrated for the Illinois game the following week. So um, I was also just on the Tim Bailey show. I know Scott was on the college football dogs mothership show doing a pick them segment. So definitely tune in and like and share and enjoy the college football dogs media page. You know, we, they, they got the smacking off the podcast. So if you kind of want something a little bit crazy, you got, you got them folks there. You have second to none, which is sec base. We have the golden boot. 
which is LSU Arkansas talk. We got a whole lot of stuff. I think the betting sharps. I can't remember what they called themselves. So collegefootballdogs.com, mikefarrellsports.com for what Scott and I are doing for them as well. Plenty of stuff for you to do there. So Scott, you ready to round third here and head home here on the prediction sake as part of the show? I see the third base coach waving me in. All right, so I'm hitting third hard here. Let's talk some predictions with our teams coming up here for week number two. Um, I'll, I, I'm going to start here. There's not an official line with Caesars for the Penn State-Delaware game. Um, I was going to say, hey, I think we all think Penn State's going to win that one, whatever the spread is. Um so my question to you, Scott, is what is for the Penn for Penn State Delaware? Penn State missed a couple key field goals in uh against West Virginia there. One from 34 and one from 38 yards from I'm gonna pull it because this isn't like a simple name here. Sanders Sehaydak. He was the number two kicker in the class of 2021. Does Penn State over or under, I'm going to put the over and under at a half, meaning they're either going to miss a kick or not. Does Penn State make all their field goals in the game? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I think they will. I, I I do think it's going to be a kicking competition. I think Franklin's going to trot out there both Sahadak and uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Columbia transfer Alex Falcons in at kicker. I do think Penn State gets the W against Delaware. Scott, I, I don't think you're you're expecting an Appalachian State situation for the Nittany Lions on Saturday. No, no there's 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 going to be no surprise there. I think the the only thing Delaware might win is the coin flip. <laughs> or or we're having a check cla- uh, cash timely from the Nittany Lions for that payday there. So let's jump into some a little bit more tougher situations. Texas A&M and Miami. It's at Hard Rock. Scott, will you be covering the game down at the stadium, or are you going to keep this one at home? Uh, I don't think I'm going to battle the crowd. I think I'm going to keep this one at home. Uh, with, with modern technology the way it is and the game being on national television, I think I can do just as well from the comfort of my man cave uh, as opposed to fighting the crowd at the stadium for a 3.30 kick. Um, I I like Miami. Uh, I, I don't want to sound like a homer, but I really think this is the game that Mario Cristobal has been looking forward to. Uh, it's sort of like a revenge game from last year. And he wants to beat Jimbo Fisher. And he wants Hard Rock Stadium to erupt. Uh, it, it's hard to get a ticket to that game now. Um, I was looking online on StubHub to check out what the tickets were selling for. And they were astronomical. I'm going with the Hurricanes too, Scott. It, it's not because we're buddies and bros. What ultimately it comes down to for me is I don't feel the Texas A&M program is in a very good spot. I do feel Miami 
they're buying the work in progress as you were bringing up. And I think your adequate description, I wouldn't say adequate. I would say your very articulate description of the offensive line as a former offensive lineman myself. I'm going to, I'm going to go with the young canes on this one. I'm not buying it. And I think you're going to start hearing after that game stuff about Fisher, but then also the sec has been dropping games. I mean, they, North Carolina lost. I mean, North Carolina beat South Carolina. LSU got demolished by Florida State. And I swear there was another L in there somewhere for the SEC. But this might be the be the game that people... LSU losing the FSU. Well, I brought that up. Um, I really do feel that we're going to start hearing is, is, is the SEC having a down here after this one. So I do like Miami. Um, one that I threw on late editor's choice, but I think, I think you'll understand Matt rules, Nebraska Cornhuskers versus coach Sanders's Colorado Buffaloes. Who do you got? I'm going to go with the Huskers in, in, in an upset. Uh, I think that, uh, Coach Prime did a great job getting his team ready for week one, but I think they played with a lot of heart and a lot of emotion. And I just don't know if they're going to be able to carry that same adrenaline into week two. I realize it's the opener at Folsom Field, but I think Matt Rule is going to have his team ready to come in and play. Um, I like Nebraska, and I, I think it's time for – people to get off the Colorado bandwagon. Well, well, Scott, I will say this. The one score hex and jinx will continue at Folsom Field. Um, I think Jeff Sims will throw, will be more turnover happy. I see this being a close game. I I do see Colorado winning this one. Um, But I do feel with Nebraska, it, this is a work in progress year for rule, it, but he's going to at least show look, Minnesota's an eight, nine win team from a year ago with PJ Fleck. You know, this is a still a very talented team in the big 10, you know, Griffin span forts, one of the better uh, tight ends in the league, maybe the best tight end. So the fact it was a 13, 10 game speaks volumes. I do think it's going to be a low scoring affair. I don't see, a 90 an 87 point explosion in this one i see this being like a 2017 type game nebraska gets their hearts broken once again there um one that i'm gonna throw on there here is oklahoma versus smu smu and rhett lashley are in a heaven utopia since they're now a power five program starting next year. Oklahoma, we didn't learn much about them. I mean, I know they won 73 to nothing over Butch Jones's mighty Arkansas state red wolves or wolf pack or whatever they are. But I still feel these are, these are, this is two, two teams. We don't know a whole lot about who do you like in this one? I like Rhett Lashley and the SMU Mustangs. Ooh, uh, going with the upset. I'm going with the upset. Oh, I'm going to go with Oklahoma. I really like Dylan Gabriel. I do think we're going to see more of Jackson Arnold. He 
Arnold was 11 11 for 114 and a touchdown. Um, I, I do feel though, one of the things that I would like to see more of out of Oklahoma is I get it was Arkansas State. You know, I'd like to see a little bit more consistency with out of their backs. Like, I'd like to see like a Marcus Major or a Javante Barnes really assert themselves on the ground. Um, outside of that, I think it's going to be a closer than expected game. I'm going to go like a 31. 31-20 type game. I think I think SMU claws back late, but we're going to see some meaningful reps from Arnold. I think Venables will pull Gabriel a little too early, and it's one of those things that SMU will pounce on on that. Um, I'm going to go to the ACC here, Scott. So this game last year got some notoriety with Appalachian State versus uh, North Carolina. Um, for those that don't know, in the in a game, it was a sixty three forty eight game. If I'm if I'm if I'm remember sixty three sixty one. It was sixty. It was it's notarized. It's notable because Appalachian State scored forty points. Scott, forty points in the fourth quarter last year. I know you play video games a little bit too, but and you play maybe some football ones, but do you think you could even score 40 points in a quarter on a video game? Uh no. I uh I I can play Madden a little bit, but uh maybe my kids can. The... Yeah. I would even question if your kids can, but 40 points in a quarter, 63-61. North Carolina got the win, but they got some major embarrassments on that. What do you see in this one here? For, do you take North Carolina with Drake May, or do you think the Mountaineers from Mighty Appalachian State can get the W? It's hard to bet against Drake May. I think he's one of the top quarterbacks in the ACC. Um, Appalachian State's got a good club. Their new offensive coordinator is Frank Ponce, who came from the University of Miami last year. And he was the quarterback's coach for Appalachian State before he left. Now he's been promoted to offensive coordinator. And he's he's got a good skill set. I see Appalachian State keeping it close through the third quarter. Uh, but I think midway through the third quarter and the fourth quarter, Drake May just pulls away with it. I'm going with North Carolina. I'm going with the Tar Heels. Too. I don't see back-to-back scares. I think I think the Vegas betting us, I think Caesars has the Tar Heels as a 15.5-point favorite. I do think Appalachian State loses this game by 14, so that might um, tell – just prefacing this for our listeners, by no means are we betting sharps and any any pick advice you take it on your own. But I, I think Appalachian State can beat the spread on North Carolina. Uh, what are my all-time favorite rivalries that's not really a rivalry per se, but 
for those who lived in the Pac-10, Pac-12 world, um, Southern Cal and Stanford. Um, I know, I know our fearless leader here at the Dogs, Mister Hunter Dworsky, lives and breathes and dies by Southern Cal. Um, the rivalry's pretty one-sided. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's 63 to 34. Um, David Shaw made it interesting the last s- several years. Um, the mighty Cardinal have won nine of the past 15. So it's been a very competitive series. That includes Harbaugh. And one of the things I wanted to bring up here was do you remember the what's your deal moment there scott no i don't so in 2007 stanford got the upset it was a 24 23 one ruined ruined usc's chances to really do anything um you go to 2008 that was one of the one of the last great USC teams with Carroll but in 2009 Harbaugh took offense to the 2008 game and he felt that the 45-23 loss there that it was a little personal so When Harbaugh said, look, we're up big, he had Stanford go for a two-point conversion while they were up, uh, I think it was like at the time, 53-21 or something similar to that. Got the two-pointer. So the final was 55-21. So when the handshake happened, Carroll went up to Harbaugh and it, it had the infamous words, what's your deal? And it began that icy, chilled relationship between the two that carried over to the NFL when they were coaching the Niners and the Hawks. But it's this is one of those rivalries where it's really one-sided. It's USC, but Stanford has ruined a lot of things for Southern Cal over the years. You know, 79 cost them a national championship. Um you go to the Harbaugh years. My question to you is, I think we've both taken Southern Cal because it's Stanford's in a really rough space. I mean, outside of EJ Smith, who's Emmett Smith's kid, there's not a lot there. Do you feel Southern Cal will cover this being 29 and a half point favorites as of this recording by Caesar Sportsbooks? I'm going to answer that with two words. It depends. (laughs) It depends on which defense shows up for USC. (laughs) Okay. Is it the defense that played against San Jose State where they gave up all those yards and four touchdowns? Or is it going to be the defense that had nine sacks against Nevada? 
I'm just going to answer it like this. Stanford isn't, they, they, they showed some life against Hawaii. I'll take it for what it's worth. They were, it's going to be one of the few W's this year, but I do see Southern Cal covering this. I see like a 44, like seven type game here. This is, this isn't going to be pretty. The only time I think USC is not going to cover a big spread is if they pull Caleb Williams early. I can see that too, but I do feel they'll, they'll cover this, and I think this is going to be the best. I thought the Southern Cal was very much improved against Nevada defensively. Again, take it for what it's worth. It's Nevada. But they were just as pitiful on offense a season ago, and considering that San Jose State wasn't exactly a run-first team. I think they averaged 96 yards a game last year rushing, and they had 200 yards of rushing offense against Southern Cal. The fact that they clamped down and didn't allow Nevada anything, I think that's going to carry over to this week. You know, I feel bad for E.J. Smith, but he'll he'll be the lone bright spot for the Cardinal. So the main event, Texas-Alabama, who do you got? I'm going to go with Alabama. I'm going to go Texas. I don't think Texas has the horns to do it. I think they got the horns. I think they're going to do a much better job protecting yours. I don't think they showed a whole lot against Rice. I think they got the playmakers between Winnington, Worthy, Sanders. I really like Jalen Ford. I think this is going to be a very close game but i do see texas getting a touchdown late to pull them ahead of alabama i'm looking at like a 31 27 type game here if alabama does lose this game it's going to be because of their secondary they're very depleted by injuries and then in their secondary their top two defensive backs are out and that's 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 not good for Texas, considering who they got at on the perimeter. If if they can take advantage of the second string DBs, then I think it's going to be a long day for Alabama. And with us not being on the following week, um, just some some little news and notes before we go on. Um, Penn State will open their Big Ten play in week three against Illinois. It's a 12 p.m. kickoff, which means it'll be 11 a.m. in Champaign. If Penn State's going to have an early upset, it's going to come to the hands of Illinois. Penn State in the past has struggled in Champaign with these sorts of kicks. Um, It's one of those things that I even worry about overall. Illinois, even though they lost Chase Brown and Devin Witherspoon to the draft, they have some really high-end talent. Um, Isaiah Williams is as good of of a vertical weapon in the game. Um, Mike Farrell just named Jerson Newton one of the top interior defensive linemen in the country. I think he even put him at number one. Um, Seth Coleman's good off the edge. Keith Randolph is good. Tavion Nicholson is an adequate replacement for Devin Witherspoon. So Penn State better be careful 
it may be on upset alert going to Champagne for that early kick. Um, South Carolina, Georgia. Um, that one could be one where Shane Beamer pulls an upset. You never know. Georgia can come off odd. Um, Washington and Michigan State. Again, I do feel Washington should blow out Michigan State, but it's in East Lansing. You never know. Tennessee, Florida should be another blowout, but again, rivalry games. And then the backyard brawl with Pitt, West Virginia. I think that Neil Brown's starting to begin to coach for his job. They can't, they they play Pitt really tough to open the season last year. It came down to a uh, – the defensive back escapes my mind for Pitt, um, who had uh, – Devonshire, he had a pick six that gave Pitt the 38-31 win last year in the backyard brawl at Akersher Stadium. This is down at Island Pasker Stadium at Mountaineer Field. This is going to be a big one. I think Brown needs to play, have his Mountaineers play a lot better. If they don't, I think his job will be on the line whenever they visit Houston and Dana Holgerson. Because like I mentioned, there's three teams this year. WVU has to, they're going to be judged against. Penn State was the first one. Pitt's going to be the next one. And then Houston going against Holgerson will be there. Those are my, some of my week three stuff. Scott, do you have any comments about week three? I know it's so far out, but what are your thoughts? I'm still processing the results of week one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that Tennessee is going to beat Florida badly. Oh, I agree. I think that game is going to be ugly. Uh, that's my ugly game of the week. Um, some of the other games, I think Penn State will beat Illinois. Uh, they're going to beat the Illini. Uh, I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of good games, but I, I just don't see any upsets. But you never know. Any given Saturday. Yeah, it's, it's that's the beauty beauty of this is you never know what's going to go down. So, any any parting words, Scott? Yeah, I, I'd be remiss. I meant to do this last week, but I wanted to give condolences to Tracy Roberts uh, on the death of Tony Roberts, longtime Notre Dame. Uh, announcer and uh, play-by-play man. Uh, he died two weeks ago, and uh, he's one of the stalwarts in the the announcing industry. And uh, I know that everyone at College Football Dogs sends their uh, heartfelt emotions out to his wife Tracy and the rest of their family. I pass along the similar condolences as well. Um, on that note, anything else there, Scott? Yeah, I'm going to be working on the evolution of the Mike Norvell era this week. And uh, we're going to see how that comes. It's going to start when Jimbo left to when Mike Norvell arrived to what happened in the last couple of years. 
we're we're going to see what Florida State was and what they became. Uh, I think that it's going to be a very interesting story to write, and I think it'll be even more interesting to read. I'm looking forward to reading that, Scott. So I have nothing else to add. I'll be getting some fish and chips and some pub food and pints over in the UK, maybe catch a what they call a football game different variety over there but we'll be back in a few weeks and for our audience and we're going to probably have start having some guests come on with some classic topics here so you're definitely going to want to tune in more to classic bones we 